0: Peyton Manning, Herschel Walker, and Ric Flair walk into a stadium, and Ric Flair has the least objectionable political views.
1: Welcome to Chapel Bell Curve, stats focused podcast about UGA football. My name is Justin and i'm nathan and today we're going to go over the tennessee game from this past weekend as always we're probably going to start with experiences as that's kind of what we do hey but first off before we even get into this whole thing i just wanted to say nathan did you know uh what number episode is today's episode is today 50 today's our 50th episode hey we made it we spent at the very least like Hold on, like seventy-five hours just recording this show, and that's not even counting all of the times that we didn't record with our microphones or did something really dumb and had to do it again.
0: Yeah, so I mean, it's we, we got to be bumping up between seventy-five and eighty hours right now of uh, just talking to each other like idiots, and somehow people are still
1: listening to it. So here we are. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not counting all the hours that I put into editing this chuckle bucket of a show. <laughs> yeah, and it's <laughs>
0: so really, it is it is a testament to life's futility and randomness that these two idiots here are still God's favorite mistake and his friend are still coming to you via the airwaves. All right, so let's talk about our experiences. I had a really good day. I I thought that the the weather went well, it was very bright, but the the lighting was just gorgeous, like, you know, the third and fourth quarter were really in sort of the um the photographer's sort of, you know, perfect hour or whatever. The golden the light hour. bouncing off Yeah, the golden hour, the the light bouncing off of the the helmets and the red and the green it just looked everything looked very nice and that's not always the case a lot of times on like the early games it's, it's pretty rough pretty bright i thought the band sounded really good uh the band looked amazing they start out in their sinatra show in the script of sinatra's signature and cbs got it through the blimp cam and it looked really good um so i was really happy about that i thought the Sousa show got was way 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 better um we had sort of a we had an adventure of a Sousa show the first time that we did it, so it's come a long way in the last three or four weeks. Yeah, I mean, that, that was about it for our experiences. I've got one other thing I want to talk about the band, but that feels more kind of like that might be an SCBC thing. I don't know what you think. Sure.
1: That's fine. I mean, I haven't heard it yet, so I'll, I'll wait to hear. Well, I just want to talk um, about
0: there's just been a lot of like
1: band negativity, and so I wanted to tell like a positive band story. There has been a lot of band negativity, and you and I get to hear the brunt of it. Not yeah. really like you and I together, but I, I see a lot of it because you run our mm-hmm. social media. And so you, you tend to yeah. either retweet things or say something or, or one of the like. Yeah. I will say, though, on a positive note, I think Dog Walk this year is way better. And it's a, it's a lot of things. It's, it's not only like the way that the band is all uh, sectioned off. I really like that a lot. Like that everything's roped off now, and so you guys have enough room to actually... Yeah, it's way wider. Like stand really and awesome. play, Yeah, play the show and everything, and or not play the show, but play it to dog walk. I, I really like that. This is my first dog walk of the, the year that I've actually made it to, so it, yeah. was, uh, it, was, it, it, it was pretty it's,
0: awesome. You know, it was something that probably needed to be done a long time ago, widening up the dog for sure. walk for the safety of the players, but then also just functionally, it just sort of takes the density out of the crowd because the crowd doesn't push mm. up against to try to get to the players as much so i mean yeah. i have nothing nothing but positive things to say about it and the fact that they've marked it off and you know they've got the red tape down and they hold up like a, a rope and they even have like cattle
1: fences or whatever they're called like crowd control fences down there at the end yeah they do which is yeah. really awesome i was also really loving the suits players in suits this year is that how long has that been happening for i don't remember that that's a that's a, uh, that's a kirby smart thing it's been that's I thought. The third year of it And it's really funny,
0: under the... Well, I used to be able to see this because the home locker room was on the side of the the stadium where the band is, where they go up under. But um, under the... Back when the home locker room was on the north end of the the north end zone, you could see they would bring out this giant, like, maybe 20-foot-long clothes hanger that was just the biggest clothes hanger you have ever seen, (laughs) where people would... Had, like, hung up their suits and then put them in... um, um, garment bags and then stacked them on top The thing was massive it was really it was like something straight out of like a dry cleaners or something
1: no i i thought that the band was really good we, and we talked a lot about sorry to interrupt you i was just saying we, we i only bring it up because we talked a lot about like how do you make the game day experience better like what do you do and i think that was a really big piece of the whole game day experience for me at least and if you don't go to dog walk all you listeners out there you should it's incredible. It's one of my favorite pieces, and then you can leave and go get lunch right afterwards, and there's still time enough to get to your seat and like kind of yeah. hang out and get the whole pre-show
0: well, and you know I think that was sort of my point last week was that there's some things we could be doing that are basically they're they're neutral in terms of money impact and they don't take a lot of work to do and they really improve the service and you get a really good bang for your buck on them and like the widening the dog walk is something like that. I mean, oh, yeah. th- there's a, probably a slight extra expense without having the extra security out there to rope off the dog walk, but the improvement in the experience for everyone involved, like it doesn't, that's the thing is like, this does not come to anyone's detriment. This is not like, well, we have to do this for the players, uh, but the fans don't like it. You know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's It helps everyone. And I think there are a lot of things in um, the game, the experience that are kind of like universal design concepts that help everybody. You know, like mm-hmm. universal design is this concept that like, um, if you make something that is good for people with disabilities, well, not just people with disabilities, but a lot of times you can make something, uh, in a, de- from a design standpoint, that's good for one group. That's good for, that's also good for another group. So like the little, uh, bumps on the edge of the walkways, like to cross the street or whatever, those were originally put in for people who uh, have vision problems or are blind. And they are actually also super useful if you're rolling a stroller. Um, and that's like, a that's like a really common concept in disability access, but I also think it's something that is really, uh, yeah, they're called curb cuts. My wife is informing me, but um, that's something (laughs) that I think is like really easy to, it's, there's a lot of stuff like that in the game day experience. That's really easy to implement that like helps everyone. Right. So like Mm -hmm. if we put a little bit more training into the people who are volunteering their time to run fundraisers, when they run the, um concession stands it helps them and it helps the fans right if we improve the state of the uh if we improve the state of the bathrooms in Sanford it helps everyone who has to go to the bathroom which is to my knowledge everyone but it also everyone. helps the game to experience because yeah it also helps the game to experience because you have fewer you have fewer people out of their seats at any given time right you don't have like you mm-hmm. know 5,000 people trying to get to the bathroom at the, at the end of every drive. And so like, there are just a lot of things like that, that are like universal design concepts that are things that help everybody. Right. And it, and I'm, this is not even a, like, we have the money complaint because this isn't even really a money thing. Like, I think we, there's a lot of stuff we could do if we just sat down and we're thoughtful about it, that would be
1: really easy. But hey, Sorry to retrofit this dang stadium.
0: Yeah. I mean, Hey, you know what though? Like kudos to them for making the, widening out the dog walk and doing so mm-hmm. in a way that helps
1: everyone it did it was a really good thing and i enjoyed it a lot that was also the first time i've gotten a tailgate at tate which is yeah, really fun because it's Anna's, uh, yeah it's, it's incredible i was like I, I having a beer turn around and i'm like oh i'm on lumpkin <laughs> i'm just here so this is fun and i had nowhere else to go i didn't have to travel any further so yeah um, what, what a good
0: time what a foreign experience that sounds like it would be so much fun um it's a
1: lot of fun nathan you should try it sometime
0: yeah well once i'm not uh If I went to someone
1: else's college game day, then maybe I could. Or I guess if I just went to an away game as a fan, I could. My experience, my experience is all over the place. Because we started the day, like I said, actually at the game. Uh, We didn't go to the game, but we were right outside at at dog walk. And so I got to see all that. Anna's uncle has season tickets and he has a tailgating spot right on Tate, uh, right near Tate Plaza. And it's incredible. And that was when we saw the whole Clemson debacle with uh, Trevor Lawrence getting hurt. And then Chase Bryce going in. Chase Bryce was from my Grayson High School alma mater as well. And one of the funniest oh, I know, things happened. I didn't know that I didn't know that at all. Yeah, yeah. He went to Grayson, and uh, he said, "Oh no." He so he goes on, and they're talking about Chase Bryce and John and his dad, who is now a listener. Oh, by the way, um, he goes, "Hey, that's one of my patients." <laughs> Chase Bryce is one of John's patients, which I th- I thought was really hilarious. And I was like, "Does he got good teeth?" He said, "Yeah." So. uh that's uh, a <laughs> patreon patreon subscriber john simmons thank you yes patreon subscriber john simmons my father-in-law uh is now a listener of this show so
0: well i mean if you can't get him then who can i get really i mean although i like it's not like either of our wives subscribe to patreon
1: yeah that's true why like, don't they get give us money that.
0: to do this anyway hey i think another I think thing my, though, w- my wife would probably ar- argue that she already does give me money
1: to do this yeah my wife does too let's be real so yeah, I missed the second half, but I ended up watching rewatching the game on Sunday, which was really fun to kind of uh just kind of skip through the game a little bit. One thing I did notice though while re watching the game is I, I'm just real tired of all of the commentators playing coach. I just I really hate the the box commentators so much. And if Gary Danielson says one more time when something doesn't go right, you gotta play a guy like Fields and the Wildcat, I might sh my pants. Yeah, what the hell does that even mean? Like 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 Jesus Christ fields is not a running back yeah he kept saying you gotta put a guy like fields in the wildcat and he said you gotta why isn't he lining up at tailback why isn't he doing this and that and i'm like because that's not his that's not his job that's yeah. not what he does gary danielson you just talk about football you don't coach it it's not yeah. your job to figure out what these guys do shut up it's yeah like they don't have anything well, he doesn't to even
0: say. he doesn't even have real stats to back himself up like they pull conventional no. stats all the time but it's not like you're gonna hear them being like Oh yeah, well that makes sense because Jawan Taylor is, you know, surrendering a greater marginal efficiency than he should as the starting inside linebacker. Blah blah blah. Like you're not going to hear that from them. So he can no. f right off. <laughs> okay, that's.
1: I just had to say that. I
0: really you hate. You can Gary miss Gatorson. me with that BS. Well, we're missing Vern. Vern. Vern yeah. God bless him. I miss him. Um. So let's let's give the people what they want. Let's go over some stats, goodness. So five factors okay. box score UGA versus UT. So points 38 to 12 obviously when postgame win percentage 97.1 percent for UGA both had 11 drives on the other hand with both having 11 drives UT had 46 plays UGA had 74 plays UT had 409 yards or 209 yards uh, UGA had 441 yards yards per play um, UGA had 5.96 to UT's 4.54 success rate uga and this is a really fun number to read uh 53.4 to 49 point or 39.5 very good scoring opportunities we had six to their two we had 6.3 points per scoring opportunity to their seven which i think they made one two-point conversion right no they didn't make any two-point
1: conversions so why is it seven because
0: they had they had two opportunities and they scored six both times
1: That sounds like it might be just messed up.
0: Their average field position was starting at the 26th as opposed to ours, which was starting at the uh, 28th. We had a 232 positive yardage margin a 13.9% success rate margin bonus, and we had a uh, negative 0.67 points per uh, scoring opportunity margin, which, you know, whatever. Our field position (laughs) margin was positive two, which is weird. Our turnover margin was positive one. We had an expected turnover of negative eight, and they had an expected turnover to a positive eight, so we got 1.8 turnovers worth of luck, which makes sense because we fumbled it four times and recovered all four of them. To this point, s updating to this game, um, UGA is currently 5-0 and with 4.6 second order wins, which means... We basically should be 5 and 0 oh, just above. Our uh, SP Plus percentile rank is 97.2, just about the same as last week. Our rank is fourth overall, which is the same as last week. Our offensive rank is sixth overall. Our defensive rank is 20th, which is seems like those numbers kind of make sense to me. Our special yep, teams rank yep. is 21st, and we have not changed since last week. I mean, anything you want to. Be- Let's pause here if we do the five factors and the uh, yep. footprint. The personality stuff. Anything in
1: that just like totally standing out to you? Uh, something I really enjoyed about this game, and we haven't talked about the traditional box scores, but you can kind of tell just from the plays that both these teams put out. The UGA 74 to UT 46. I really love just the amount of possession that we had in this game. You'll, you'll see further down when we start talking about the traditional box scores that we had the ball for almost 40 minutes to their 22 minutes. But you wouldn't know that from the score, but you'd yeah. know that from the actual time of possession. You'll know that from the plays at the yardage. But past that, I just start I, looking at our actual offensive footprint. It doesn't show it as well, unfortunately.
0: Well, I, I actually disagree. I think you can. I think. I think anytime you beat a team by twenty six points, you got to kind of just be like, yeah, that's good. Yeah, and it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think my central thesis for today is that everyone needs to calm down um mm-hmm. and i and i think there are some reasons for worry we'll get into this in the box score but we'll, we'll, let's we'll get a little it bit part. yeah for sure um getting a little bit deeper into things here if we look at our five factors so l- let's let's go through the five factors because i think this sort of um builds into i kind of have a central thesis on the day and i it kind of requires each component of this together so mm-hmm. uga offensively success rate 51.9 percent, good for 10th in the nation marginal efficiency Six percent, good for fourth in the nation. ISO PBP, one point three three for twenty first in the nation. Marginal explosiveness is twenty fourth in the nation. Average field position fifty second. Points per scoring opportunity fortieth. Expected turnover margin fourth and actual turnover margin or eighth. Um, Those two numbers are actually pretty good because you don't want expected and actual to be too different. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so we have a plus five point, we have a plus 5.2 expected turnover margin to um, an actual turnover margin of plus six, which means we're not getting that lucky. We're only getting about uh, 0.8 points per game on average. Defensively, we are 97th in efficiency, not great. We are 64th in marginal, we're, we're 97th in success rate, but we're 64th in marginal efficiency, which means that we're not actually that bad play to play. We're just giving up more yards than we should. We are first in both explosiveness stats first, in of P mm-hmm. plus and first in marginal explosiveness. 45th in average field position, 32nd in points per scoring opportunity, and yeah, so that's our five factors. So, you know, I think that kind of is in line with what we've seen. Success rate is way, there's people's success rate on against us is way too high, but on the other hand, we are not giving up any big plays and you have to, you know, do sustained drives against us, and not yeah. everyone has been successful at doing that. Basically, if we, it, it <coughs> what it seemed to me, and this kind of bore itself out defensively against Tennessee is we we limit the play we limit play against us so well on the on explosive plays we limit explosive plays so well that if we get one explosive play for us as opposed for the other team that it's like the drive's basically over but it's almost like if a break we point. can put them yeah. behind the chains at all and make them need an
1: explosive play then you know they don't they're screwed they're not gonna get it yeah which is where you you actually see that in the in the traditional stats with uh, their 11 first downs in the game. Yeah, exactly. To our twenty-six, um, so UGA offensive footprint.
0: Um, we are twenty-third in the nation in standard down run rate, thirty-sixth in pass down run rate, one hundred eleventh in adjusted pace, fifty-fifth uh, in <laughs> percentage of solo tackles, and second in havoc rate allowed. We have not been giving up havoc plays. Which um, is great. We are, yeah standard down run rate, standard pass down run rate on defense one eighteen and one twenty-one. That I think has to do more with the types of teams than we played than like us in particular, like people just have not been running against us on early downs, which is weird because yeah. they've been pretty successful with doing it. Um, overall, havoc rate great 77th. DL, have a great 128th. That's the worst stat of any stat uh, that we have. Now, it, you know, I'm of two minds. It's not good. But on the other hand, you know, it, it's it's not good. But on the other hand, like you can live with it if your D line is being efficient, which they are not. We could be a very efficient D-line that did not have a high havoc rate just because of the way our our, um, uh, defense is constructed, but it's just not great. But on the other hand, on the good side, our linebacker havoc rate is currently 15th in the nation. Our defensive back havoc rate is 51st in the nation. Passes defense to interceptions, we are 40th in the nation, so we're still pretty aggressive on interceptions. So, Mm -hmm. to me, you know... The D-line is sort of the weakest part of the team, I would say, probably, talent-wise and performance-wise to this point. Um, And that's borne out by these statistics. But I also, I mean, let's go through the, before we get into, like, our takeaways and what we saw and all that, let's get into traditional stats. Is there anything in traditional stats you think we need to add here?
1: Uh, Well, I I was really just going to kind of echo what you were saying and talk about one more thing in those, in the five factors, is that, I mean, with the defensive line have a grade I don't know if it's I, I want to ask and I, I want to kind of speculate is it intentional that our defensive line have a grade is that high or are we really losing and getting mismatch on the defensive line because what the explosiveness you know having a, a first ranked explosiveness as opposed to like a, a pretty average ranked efficiency and then our have a grade is so low I'm, I'm trying to wonder if this is because we're having such conservative play calls and we're trying to let people get through the defense like the our defensive line To make them play inside, which is why we have so many, like uh, a higher percentage of solo tackles, and we're making people play under so often. Is that all intentional? Is it just kind of what's happening? Does that make sense? I i think it has to do
0: with, I I mean, to me, what I think it has to do with is a combination of things. Like, we're not trying, I think you're right in that some of it is schematic, but I also think that it's schematic because we know that the defensive line is not the strength of the team, if that makes sense.
1: No, that makes sense. And I, I'm just trying to figure it out. Like I know that our conditioning is better than a lot of teams and we have more depth than a lot of teams. And it's also still early well, in the well, season. And so that's well, kind of why well, I'm asking. Well, yeah. Let's go
0: through let's go through uh, D line some D line stats, like some per yeah. player stats. Okay. So if we look at the people who are listed on Bill Connolly's advanced stats as D linemen, which I think this pretty much gets all of them. Um, so Tyler Clark on this year, he has had eight point five tackles, one point five tackles for loss, half a sack, three and a half run stuffs and one pass breakup. He is currently giving up 1.6 yards per play with a 38.6 marginal efficiency, negative 38.6 marginal efficiency, yeah. and plus, plus 0.43 marginal explosiveness. So like that's a good example of like someone who has a very good stat sheet but just doesn't have the havoc plays. You know what I'm saying? On the other hand, you have Julian Rochester who has six tackles, half a tackle for loss, half a sack, half a run stuff, and one pass broken up who is giving up 4.3 yards per play and only giving up negative 8.1 marginal efficiency and negative 0.1 marginal explosiveness. So he's having a decent year, but he's not having a great one, if that makes sense.
1: I was going to say, with everybody's marginal efficiency, that's kind of how you can kind of, you know, that's that's your your point of reference.
0: Honestly, the marginal efficiency numbers on the D-line are not that bad. Like Malik Herring has a negative 3.6 marginal efficiency. Let's see if there are any others on the D-line in well, here. Everybody else that is doesn't pretty look average like that. right around that zero mark, except
1: yeah. for Tyler Clark, who you pulled out first.
0: Yeah. Hey, can I just say one thing? Yeah. And, and, and this guy tries really hard, but he just Malik Herring and Jawan Taylor are not having good years. No. Malik Herring is giving up 39.3 positive marginal efficiency on the year. He just is not a sure tackler and tackler sure tackler. I did it. A <laughs> f-ing I did it again. Juwan Taylor is giving up a 33.3% positive marginal efficiency on the year, which means that on any given play, he gives up 33% more yards than is expected by the uh, more he's, he gives up 33% more efficiency based in terms of like how much you're expected to get based on what the play situation is than the average player would. And that is yep. not good. I mean, I saw that uh, part of the problem is like the defensive line. See, I, you were talking about schematically and my theory on this is that part of using the defensive line hasn't had as many, um havoc plays is that a lot of times when you have a havoc play it's because a line it's because the running back has to bounce the ball back inside when you have a defensive line havoc play um and they just haven't had to because our inside linebackers do not have good closing speed well let me refresh yep. because Jawan Taylor does not have great closing speed and I hate to call a kid out man like I really I I really try to avoid it but he's he's not having a great year dude he really no. is not and and it's okay. It's the little a little bit disturbing that he's getting so much playing time. And I know that he, he has like, you know, I know that he has a very good reputation as a leader and he's a senior and he's very experienced and has the playbook, but he's not playing well. What is really good is our cornerbacks
1: and our outside linebackers are having good years and our safety is yeah. well, too just our defensive And our defensive counseling. end yeah.
0: Our defensive ends. I mean, Jonathan Ledbetter he has um, two run stuffs, but he has a negative 46.8 marginal proficient, uh, efficiency when plays come his way, and he's giving up 1.7 yards per play. Brenton Knox, nice. who is also, I would argue, a de- he's listed as an outside linebacker, but he's basically defensive end in this, in this, um, this thing, in this defense. He is giving up negative 21.4% marginal efficiency when plays come his way, and only 1.7 yards. God's most beautiful child, uh, DeAndre <laughs> Baker. He's only giving up at the cornerback spot. He's only giving up 6.7 yards per play.
1: Yeah. God, that's so good. Anyway. And that's kind of what I was I was kind of getting at is with DeAndre Baker and, and you know, J.R. Reed and all these guys on the outside is like with teams, teams we're playing, you know, we talk about making teams predictable, making sure that you're playing to a team's weaknesses so you can make them predictable. And our weakness is on the inside. And so that's why, you would think a lot more teams would be running the ball more often, but it seems like a lot more teams are throwing the ball um, under a lot more often. And so it's keeping it from the cornerbacks and the safeties, which is where the strength of our defense comes from. And so that's kind of normally that would weaken out those outsides as the offensive, uh, you know, the, the opponent's offense continues to do the same thing over and over again. You eventually call defensive plays that would, you know, start to come under a bit more, but that just hasn't happened. And we're not letting those explosive plays go out over the top or in the corners which it it just kind of is a testament towards those guys on the outside still is that they're still making plays despite teams still playing to those weaknesses
0: i agree and i think like you said teams playing to the weakness it's only uh, we don't play many teams that can play to that weakness but we do play a couple and that's kind of the disturbing part like i'll give you a good example lsu is a very good team and we very well could lose but they don't really have a team that is entirely worrisome, not because they're not talented, but because their talent matches up the best against the strength of our team, right? Their ta- yeah. their, their most talented position is wide receiver. And, like, that's the team we want to play, right? Mm-hmm. I would say, in some ways, Kentucky actually threatens us more than LSU because LSU— 100%. Our, Kentucky doesn't really throw the ball. They just run you to death. Yeah. And, you know, that's— that's not always great I, for us. Yeah, and
1: I'll be honest, and we can talk about this later after we talk through these stats. I'm, I am most afraid of Kentucky at this point. Uh, I don't know if I would say I'm most afraid, but yeah. If you look, I've looked over the stats a good bit, and they're getting pretty, pretty spooky. Yeah, so l- let's talk about what we saw. It feels like our O-line is hurting, and it showed just from watching the game, and so you can you can sit there and you can watch the game. And you can kind of say like Jake Fromm's taking too long in the pocket. He's always you know, it's something he's always done. Is he takes a little bit longer in the pocket because he's he's so calm in the pocket. And last year he was calm in the pocket because we had an O line that was able to protect him for longer. But with the the injuries and the weakness of just newer players on the O line, he doesn't have that luxury any longer. And so it's it's it seemed sort of problematic. I would say that's that is partially I feel why we had um, the issues we had you know, and I can kind of look at the stats. I'm kind of curious to look at the stats on O-line have a great allowed, which is something I should have done before now. Have a great allowed right now is 14.6%. So we're, we're letting guys get through, which is kind of a big issue. And, and so I feel like that's that's kind of what's going on with Jake Fromm. I know you're going to talk a little bit about Jake Fromm too, about how he's just got to kind of get his stuff together. And I agree. I feel like he's taking too long to get plays off at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could be wrong. What do you think?
0: No, I think, I, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, i am ai am i am a, I'm a, I'm a, f- I'm of mixed, I have mixed feelings about Fromm. I think Fromm knows this offense really well. I think Mm -hmm. that he goes through his progressions really well. I think his internal clock is a little bit off, but I think that's also because we're not pass blocking as well as we have, which is kind of weird. It's not weird. I mean, Isaiah Wynn's a very good player. so I think we kind of, I think the problem is that Andrew Thomas is having like an all American year and it's probably one of the best left tackles in the league but Mm -hmm. in the SEC at least, but at the same time, Isaiah Wilson, as much of a gifted athlete as he is, he looks like he gets gassed on plays and he's given up some more pressure than he should have. And I think kind of part of the problem on, like, so for instance, part of the problem on Saturday was that uh, our starting offensive line had very good numbers. What we started was um, from left to right was Thomas, Kindley, Galliard, Cade Mays, and Isaiah Wilson. So then Mm -hmm. at some point, We, Isaiah Wilson looks like he's getting gassed. He doesn't quite have his conditioning up to where it should be. And then they put in uh, Solomon Kindley, not Solomon Kindley. They put in Kendall Baker at right tackle and he immediately gives up a sack. Or they take out Cade Mays because he gave up a sack. And then they put in Kendall Baker who immediately gives up a sack. And look, Kendall Baker started a lot of games for this team, but he's not, he is not the prototypical five-star Uber recruit that we have on this team at this point that makes up like more than half of the team. And so I, it's, it's just like, we, I think, because of the injury to Ben Cleveland, we're being forced to put our trust in a freshman. And what that means is, even though that starting offensive line had such a good day, Cade Mays is going to give up some plays. And so if we have to shuffle things around, I think the drop-off is pretty big. But, you know, and having said all of that, though, I think, you know, at the end of the day, ultimately, if Tyson Campbell doesn't commit that penalty, we, this is probably a, what, 38-6 game. And nobody's saying this. If the offense there were three balls that were thrown that were almost sure touchdowns. One of them was an overthrow to McCall Hardman. That was a definite touchdown. Another yep. one was a uh, screen to James Cook or, no, to DeAndre Swift. That was definitely a touchdown. DeAndre yep. Swift should have caught that. Another one yep. was like an Akil Crumpton crossing that route that went through his hands that he has to catch that. So, you know, it's, it's like on the one hand, we got some breaks, right? We, 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 got, the, we got a turnover. We got all four of the turnovers. We probably should have only gotten two. But on the other hand, we probably should have scored what fifty-nine points in this game. Like you pretty easily, this you can see this game being fifty-nine, and it's like, so I, it's hard for me to be that worried. I because I'm not the yet. thing is, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, I, I think my offensive thing, my thing about the offense right now is like, we don't need to bring in another recruiting class for this to be a national championship offense. We just no. gotta, we just gotta. In pardon my French, we just have to get our shit together isaiah wilson has a bad day in pass protection right that's a that's a problem but it's like isaiah wilson is a five star he is a, he is going to be like a very good offensive lineman in this league and probably in the nfl so it's like it's hard for me to be that concerned about it going forward you know we have rodrigo blankenship out here stunting on people that was another <laughs> one of my observations rodrigo, rodrigo blankenship not just the best kicker in the college football but the best kicker to ever kick the best kicker for the internet Best kicker for you and for your family and for your heart and your soul and your body, Rodrigo Blankenship. He's the best. And here's something that, let me, while we're ragging on Gary Danielson, let me just say this. F*** you, Gary Danielson, for saying that that was lucky that Rodrigo Blankenship hit, kicked that uh, kicked that ball right over the crossbar. Let me, let me get it. okay, now I'm pissed off. Now I'm like raring to go about this. Let me just give you. Let me give one thing about Rodrigo Blankenship. Okay, so so when Rodrigo Blankenship, there was a bobble snap by Jake Camarda. The snap mm-hmm. was not actually great, but Jake Camarda bobbled it. Rodrigo Blankenship stopped, stepped back, hesitated for it to get, and then uh, to get set, and then popped it right over the bar, soccer style. Now, y- even if you didn't know what I'm about to tell you, you should probably know that that wasn't just luck. And Gary Danielson resol- responded to it by me, and what luck the dogs are getting. We did get lucky, but this is not an example of that. So even if you didn't know that what i'm about to tell you you should know that that wasn't luck because like rodrigo was like an all-star soccer player in in um high school and that was like a vintage penalty kick kick that he mm-hmm. just did but he said this is what rodrigo said the first thing we do after we have our team flex is go up to the top field and hit some no steps. That's what that kick was. You don't go, you don't take, go to take any steps. You're already planted next to the ball, and you've just got to kick it. We start practice every day with that drill so we feel comfortable, and I felt comfortable and that I could kick it at least far enough to get it over. And he did. Yeah, so this is all I'm saying. Like That wasn't luck. That was something that they had practiced, right? He said, Coach Smart was speaking to us before the week about having discipline, physicality, and composure. So all week, I was just thinking about being as composed as I could possibly be with whatever situation came up. And in that situation, I was just trying to trust the process, stay composed, and trust that Jake was going to be able to get it back
1: down on the spot, and he did. That's not... It was absolutely incredible. That's not Nobody's... No, it wasn't luck. That was absolutely that. Yeah, they just cleaned it if up. You,
0: if you if you prepare for an eventuality and it happens, and then you deal with that eventuality, it wasn't luck. That's not luck. It was bad luck that he bobbled the snap. Do what what Rodrigo did was like a classic, you know, penalty kick from Messi or something. That wasn't luck. Anyway. And also, just the way he's so calmly planted, watched the he replanted, pulled his leg back, waited for the ball to come down, and watched a defensive lineman hurtling at the ball, let him fall <laughs> down, and then popped it over the yard, over the line. That yeah. is some like that is some like Migos level stunting. That is some <laughs> Quavo level stunting on somebody right there. That it's is a like standing that, kick. He might as well have just like like pulled his giant chain out from under his uniform and flossed it. Right in front of everybody. Jesus Christ! And you—you could tell it was a big deal because if you watch the replay of it, the first thing that happens after he does it is that one of the people blocking for him literally just picks him up. Yeah, like bodily picks him up and just like lifts him up over his head. Like Charlie Warner just walks up to him and picks his little body up, (laughs) Um, tiny body. (laughs) Because that's because Uh. that's that's who he is. Rodrigo is—he's—he's more than a—he's—he's like an urban legend. Like when when america is laid to waste and we're all our descendants are all living in the ruins slowly mutating into different different things of what humanity will be uh, they'll still be telling the the story of this beautiful warrior with the glasses
1: <laughs> they'll look back and think who was this beautiful person who is was this what this humans man? looked like who was this man is this what they all were and you know we'll only be so lucky I also wrote in my notes, "Hot Rod does it again." This is all in caps. Hot Rod does it again. Is there anything this man can't do? And it's true. I also had a moment this weekend where I, I sat and I daydreamed about Adam Vinatieri finally leaving the Colts one day, which I, I I'm kind of convinced he never will. The man's forty five and he's twenty three seasons in. He might he might just kick until he's eighty. He could. <laughs> he's still he still looks better than just about any. He, he, he's the best kicker in the league easily. You know, going into the season, he was at two thousand four hundred eighty six eighty seven points which he's only behind 2,544 points, Morton Anderson. And so I think at the very least, he will get... He'll, he's uh, going to try to break t- Morton Anderson. He's going to break that. But I think he could keep kicking for some time. But I had a, a moment where I daydreamed about him finally leaving one day and then a Rodrigo Blankenship just kind of going to the Colts and becoming the next Adam Vinatieri. And my heart skipped a beat. <laughs> it was beautiful. Oh
0: um we got any other any other observations no those were observations those these are the raw unfiltered thinkings (laughs) of um things that you know the of things that we've seen so let's let's do takeaways so yeah we we, kind of we've hit the stats we've given you some big picture stuff or some specific stuff and some big picture stuff so now let's pull where we are in the season So we're sitting here, we're going in the Vanderbilt game. We got LSU coming up. That looks like a hard game. We've got Kentucky coming up. That looks like it's going to be a hard game. We've got Auburn coming up who kind of is trash on offense, but that's still going to be a hard game because they're Auburn. So where are we right now? Here's my, this is the central thesis that I've been building through. Every time we do these review episodes, we talk about here are the things that were frustrating because maybe we didn't have effort, maybe we didn't have execution. Um, here are the people that are angry on Twitter. Here is blah blah blah. But ultimately, if this team keeps winning games like this, they can win nine games, and that's Easy. gonna be that that's gonna be disappointing because we don't want to win nine games. No. but I just want everyone to pause for a second and think about how many games did Mark Rick teams win when they played like this? They won seven or eight at the most, right? Mm-hmm. If they get this stuff together, if they do the small stuff correctly, which I know they are capable of doing, not if they add another player, not if the freshmen come along, not if the the coaches start calling better plays, which, you know, offensive play calling was an issue on Saturday. But if if we just execute what we can execute, this is a team that can go to the national championship. It just Mm -hmm. full on is. Now, I don't think this is a team that can beat uh, Alabama because I don't know if that team exists. Uh, But if we if this team can just do what it needs to do, we can win the national championship, right? But there's things that have to happen, right? We are calling very conservative plays. Now, and you, the reason you call a game conservatively is because it lowers your margin for error, right? If you call a run up the gut every game or every play, you're probably not gonna have many turnovers, but at the same time, you're not gonna score many points. And so in some ways it lowers your margin of error because you're not gonna have any big plays against you, but you're also not going to be scoring very consistently. And I think our conservative play calling combined with our, our lack of execution right now, what it's doing is not so much giving up havoc plays, what we're doing is we're just like making it so that when we do get plays successful, they have to be very successful. So yes, that does need to get better. But I also think that Jake Fromm has to step up, right? It is not time to go to Justin Fields. I don't think Justin Fields knows this offense well enough. He's thrown a couple of very questionable balls that against good teams are going to be picks, right? But at the same time, he's going to continue to put more pressure on Fromm if Fromm cannot make some adjustments going forward. Fromm, don't get me wrong, he's having a great year, but he is not playing up to his national championship Rose Bowl form right now. Ultimately, though, I think this is a team that can win every game remaining on its schedule, but we have got to clean up the little things.
1: Uh, mine is mostly from the offense, which is kind of a funny thing because our offense is very, very good, and that's exactly what the stats tell us. But what the stats also tell us is not that I, on one on one hand, of course, our run game is incredible. We know that. We don't have to talk about that. Our receiver core is incredible. Our O line is still where we're lacking, and that does come from both the inexperience and also the injuries of course it makes sense but when we get to these bigger teams these bigger SEC teams that have more to win and also more to lose we're going to have some trouble i feel and we're going to need to get it together And that's a little bit of what you're saying but i i'm, I'm really afraid of these teams with uh bigger defensive lines that are going to be able to blitz better because we are still lacking pretty hard in blitz downs that's kind of showing a little bit when Jake Fromm's trying to get the ball off and and so if he's able to get the ball off quicker he's able to If his clock is lining up with his receiver's clock, because those guys are going to beat people downfield all day, every single day, if he can match up with them and continue to match up with them like he did last year, because his team is so much quicker than they were last year already, I think we're going to be a lot better off, and he's going to get a hot hit a lot less.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I mean, and so, I mean, I think that's where we are. I think we could very easily lose the Kentucky, uh, LSU, or Auburn game. We could go two and one in those. We could do a one and two in those. It's very, very possible. Do we go and three in those? Yeah, uh I have a very hard time seeing us going 0 and 3. Like I mean I I just think statistically like we should win all of those games if nor- if narrowly. So like 1 and 2 that makes sense. That's just like maybe bad breaks so or you don't- you don't play an efficient game. 2 and 1 like that's you know, you play a really good game. 3 and 0 you you have three awesome games. But 0 and 3 man, 0 and 3 that's a spiral. And I- something happens, yeah. Here's the something thing. happens real bad. We can spiral, but this team
1: is probably too talented to spiral that much. Yeah. And I I just want to reiterate with what you said too, is that I think a lot of what we're seeing and a lot of the worry that's being created and the anxiety that we're experiencing comes from the conservative play calling. And we're just, I feel like we're keeping the fuel in the tank for the rest of the season. We've already seen a lot of really costly injuries and we don't want any more. There's no point when we're winning bank games in double points. You know, we're meeting all of our S&P plus margins. The only thing is that we're just not playing to our percentile performance. And that's kind of still where I'm at is that I find comfort in knowing that we're still playing at 70% of our optimum potential right now.
0: No, this is like, this is, we had a 72% percentile performance on this game,
1: right? Yeah, what we saw, 38-12, was 72% of our overall effort.
0: 75th on offense, 69th on defense. So, I mean, let's just calm down. You know what I'm saying? It's going to be okay. We're going to have to play better than we played today to beat LSU. Can or is is it possible for us to play better than we played on Saturday? Rather, uh, without adding new players to this team, absolutely, positively, a hundred percent it is. So, you know, we can we can lose some games, and that's how this game works, right? Like, if we don't play under sixty-two games. You're probably gonna lose some games. It's just the way it works. But at the same time, like, l- if we do lose those games, let's not act like that this was some like great failing of a season. Like, I. I uh, we said from the beginning of the season that we weren't going to be as good as we were last year and that everyone thought we might take a small step back because of what we lost. Yeah. We're sitting here at 5-0, and the fourth ranked team in the nation by advanced stats. We're fine.
1: Hey, uh, a really neat new advanced stat that, that Bill Connolly's put together and he's putting on the Georgia spreadsheet is this um, this win total odds. And he breaks it down between regular season only and he breaks it down for conference win total odds. And so... Right now, we are we have a thirty six percent chance, which is, our, which is our highest percentage chance of a uh, an amount of wins, which is eleven. So we have a thirty six percent chance of winning eleven games in the regular season. And what the conference win total odds is showing me is that that loss a, most likely comes from uh, in our conference. conference. Yeah, we have yeah.
0: a thirty eight percent chance of going um 7 and 1 in conference. But if you combine that with the 19% chance, we have a 57% chance of having either 7 or 8 wins in conference. If yep. you win 7 or 8 games in the SEC, you're doing fine. Yeah. We might get the breaks might be bad and we might not make it to the National Championship. Hell,
1: we might not make it to the SEC Championship if the breaks are bad enough, but that's just how it is. Hey, one thing though, I will say like the team the second best team in the SEC East right now is of course Kentucky with they have not as good of a chance as we do go into the sec championship but if they beat us they do go to the sec championship and that is the only thing left kind of in our way of getting to the sec championship is beating kentucky at this point which is kind of scary and on one hand i'm like man i really i do really like a cinderella story i'll be honest but i, mean, I don't want I, it to go that way
0: i think kentucky is the pe- person that we're kentucky is the team we're most likely to uh lose to but i also think yep. that i don't know i mean Kentucky's remaining schedule what's it what's it look like right now
1: what what are they going forward they got Texas A&M this weekend so they'll they'll probably they have a 50% chance of winning or losing that game then they play Vanderbilt Missouri us Tennessee Middle Tennessee Louisville the only two games they're slotted to lose are Texas A&M and Georgia and they have a 37% chance of winning our game
0: yeah but the thing is if they go one and one in that game we could still beat them
1: we could if
0: the tiebreakers work out correctly but but then they would have the head to head over us. So, yeah, we
1: we need to beat them. There's no doubt about you, that. Yeah. Honestly, we'll, we'll honestly, go over it a lot more, but they're honestly, playing up to their percentile performance really well.
0: Yeah. Honestly, like, we probably need to beat Kentucky more than we need to beat LSU. Well, oh, say. absolutely. Yeah. If we could if, go one and one in those games, then you want to take, you want
1: to go one and one in the, you want to take, take Kentucky, Kentucky game. Because that means we still get to go to the SEC championship. And we play Alabama, unless Alabama just completely loses to Auburn, which they, they tend to do sometimes. Uh, with that last game of the season so we'll see what happens but there, there's a lot of a lot of football to play still let's get into prediction review <laughs> yeah so your very first prediction that you handed out was an over under of sixty-three and a half points total you said over i said under it was still under it was right at 50 50 points yeah yeah they me on this one boys all right the next over under was 20 justin fields snaps i think we both said over
0: and the snaps for justin fields on saturday were he had 14. Damn. Ooh. oof. Brutal.
1: Yeah. We... That one hurts. Ugh. Anyway, it felt like he was just out there a lot more. Uh, next over under was all right, 0.500 plus yard performances from UGA running backs. We both said over. We were both wrong. There were no hundred plus yard performances from UGA running backs. Uh, it is what it is. I threw out UGA over under UGA 15 and a half points. Uh, you said over. I said under. We were right at 50. <laughs> That's dumb over under one and a half punts returned for touchdowns by uga you said under i said over we did not get those that i was hoping for we actually returned no punts on the weekend which is unfortunate i was hoping we would do a lot more um over under three and a half Georgia sacks we both said over there were only two sacks on the day but there were six tackles for loss so that was pretty neat
0: yeah so i got this game super super wrong i said 53
1: 24 i was 27 points off it happens yeah i mean i i wanted to be that bold too it could have gone that way had a few of those overthrows actually been caught uh, yeah i know it's a brutal it, it brutal loss. crazy um i had forty nine six. So that was a 17 point difference which is still not a, a point differential i'm super proud of but i will take the win i will take the w so this was my game last week it was your game this was my game
0: yeah it definitely was you took some wins this week i'll um, take it so our favorite 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 segment ask cbc actually we have a new segment this week because that might actually be my favorite so ask cbc we don't have many. we actually don't have that many this week um That's but okay. we do have a few from the old from the old sta- old reliable so ask cbc can you talk about schadenfreude especially regarding kelly bryant
1: oh man oh man can i just uh, before you get into it i'll let you warm up because you'll talk about it those of you that aren't aware of what happened with the kelly bryant situation uh which I, i'm sure they're the majority of you are, but if you're not, don't feel bad. That's okay. I'm going to give you the quick four one one. So Kelly Bryant was the quarterback for Clemson. He was a starting quarterback this year. He waited behind Deshaun Watson and won a national championship while riding the bench straight to the national championship, which isn't the worst thing in the world unless you want to be an NFL quarterback. Uh, Deshaun Watson finally leaves. Kelly Bryant gets the job. Then they recruit uh, Trevor Lawrence, which was the number one uh, pocket passing, like traditional quarterback recruit in this recruiting class so he rides the bench for a while kelly bryant just doesn't produce the way that they want him to they let trevor lawrence try his way at things and he's great and so he takes the job the weekend following actually the weekend the tuesday following the saturday he's benched he quits the team Mm
0: -hmm. he transfers he transfers transfers. i I don't know if i use the word quit but yeah he didn't quit
1: but he couldn't play another game because if he did then he would lose his red shirt is the issue and so he had to go and if you want a lot of people have a lot of opinions about this. I think Kelly Bryant made the right decision. He made the right decision for himself, just like the team is always making the right position. Like the coaches are making the right decisions for the team as a whole. Uh, And sometimes that includes benching somebody when they have most likely a bright future in the NFL, which Kelly Bryant may very well have. But if he wants that, he's going to have to leave Clemson to go play for another year so he can pad his resume and get all of the accolades that he needs in order to show off that he has the skills to play in the NFL.
0: Yeah, I mean... I don't have a lot of shot in Freud. I mean, I have a little, but I don't really hate Clemson that much. So, like, whatever. I, I mainly my thing is like, I agree. I think you know the team's going to do what's in its best interest, and we can't expect a player not to do what's in his best interest, especially when he's not getting paid. I think that there's maybe a labor argument to be made that if we were paying the players, that they should not be able to transfer as easily or whatever. But I, you know, if you're not going to pay the players and you're going to treat them as you know basically professional amateurs or whatever they. Uh, student athletes, then you can't be upset if they leave. I mean, that's just the way it is. Um, to me, it wasn't even Schottenfreude. it was just like this is the this is the grim irony that fate has for each of us.
1: Our next ask CBC comes from Irked Russell. National media seems to have no problem with the way the dogs are playing, but the local fans are stressed. Is this a case of national media reading box scores, or are we fan spoiled?
0: I think both are
1: true. Yeah,
0: I think I think the national media probably hasn't seen how out of rhythm that we look on offense, but I also think ultimately like. You know we're losing like about a point a game on average per uh four um on turnover luck for instance and the highest it's been is like three or four points so it's like even if we were unlucky we still would probably have won all of these games if not closer you know what i mean so Mm -hmm. i think that the fans are super spoiled and the fans expect things to look good which it doesn't make sense because they're starting so many freshmen it's not always going to be pretty when you're starting freshmen right I'm not one of those both sides people, and I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, the (laughs) truth is somewhere in the middle. But honestly, I do think that this is one of those things where basically you don't want to approach it with, you know, sunshine in your eyes, but simultaneously you should probably just accept the fact that if this is the fourth best team and it looks ugly and it just gives you a heart attack every time, but we still end up in the national championship, you probably should just say thank you,
1: you know? Mm -hmm.
0: So who do we got next?
1: Uh, Next one is a new one that I don't actually... uh... Yeah,
0: Boo nice. Boo Ma. Boo Boo Ma, which I
1: like. Me, yeah, so this one is from
0: Boo Boo Ma, who is also Boo Boo Ma or Brody Marino who says do you think fans who are overly concerned about the past two games are the same old run the damn ball bobo crowd who found a way to criticize anything and everything or did 2017 truly transform UGA fans into people expecting immediate payment level consistency it is the first one these are the same damn yep, people these are the people. same insurance salesmen who go to two games a year and sit in the 200 section and drink beer or whiskey out of their flask or whatever and think that they know all this shit about football even though they haven't played they haven't read anything about football since you know high school their high school uh playbook and they didn't even play back then so yeah it's the same people
1: that's and that's the whole point of this podcast that's why we created this podcast is to educate the average football listener the fact that we can even talk about football we've educated ourselves and we hope you've learned something too is yeah don't be those people
0: this is like another example of how like the how the internet is like the great equalizer because yeah neither of us played but we actually took the time to look it up
1: yep Uh, our next one comes from ryan clark if you punch yourself and it hurts does that make you weak or strong Okay, so I don't know that I don't know that he's
0: referring to this, but I have a story related to this from just today. Yeah, I think you he might yeah. be I think you might be referring to this. So, I was at the gym today cuz I go to the gym and I was doing bench press and I have been trying to be more cognizant in my bench press form of not letting my wrists roll back because that's bad for your wrists and ultimately it also lowers your numbers. Um and I felt one of my wrists roll back and it didn't feel like it was going to be like it was hurting my wrist or anything, or like it was going to pop my wrist out or anything. It just, you know, I was only lifting like 205, I think at that point, which was the max I was doing for the day. Um, but still, it's not compared to a lot of people. It's not a lot. Um, I'm just weak. So anyway, <laughs> so I felt my wrist roll back and I tried to roll it forward. And the, the bar rotated in my hands and just fell directly onto my abdomen. And let me tell you. If you punch yourself and it hurts, does that make you weak or strong? I don't know what if that makes you weak or strong in like the abstract sense, but I wanna say that in the real life, like reality sense, it makes you very weak. It hurts. I spent <laughs> about an hour today with a big bag of ice saran wrapped to my belly, like some kind of sympathy belly for uh, a dude whose uh, wife is pregnant. Uh, and it feels <laughs> a little bit better. I will say though, the rest of the, I, I got I burnt a lot of calories through the rest of the workout because I, my heart rate was just super high the rest of the time because I was just like, I just gotten out of a car wreck.
1: Uh, Abby Vincent Key, stage manager for life asks, what's your favorite sour beer? So before we go, so before we go into this,
0: uh, the answers that you have put down are sours themselves, but I actually think we should have a different like category, which is like, what is your favorite beer that is sour? Because I, I think I, I think my answer is different, different for those two things, right? So that's a
1: really good differentiation that you've actually shared because sour beer itself is something, it, it's a very abstract idea. Like there's, there's soured beers. And that's kind of a better way to describe it because what that is, it's just a beer with a higher, uh, a higher pH or a lower pH, excuse me, to make it taste more acidic. And so what you're actually, there's a lot of different ways to make sour beer, but what you're about to share is a sour mash beer yeah. uh, as opposed to a, a beer that's been actually soured from the fermentation. Sour beer is really interesting too for me because sour beer is the closest thing to what beer used to be before the modern day brewery came about. Uh, And the reason being is because what we have in the modern day brewery is a much cleaner facility. We have ways to clean uh, tanks. We have ways to clean the actual brew deck. We have ways to clean the fermenter and the bright tanks and the kegs we put everything in because sour beer comes from the actual like wild fermentation of extra bacteria and yeast that's in the environment that you're making the beer in. And so what modern day brewers have done is they have found out that most of that fermentation coming from all the bacteria and the yeast in the air carries flavor with it, and it changes the flavor profile of certain, uh, certain things that that bacteria and, 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 yeast will actually eat. So it eats that sugar, uh, farts out, you know, alcohol and other flavors, of course. So it creates new flavor compounds when it interacts with the sugars. So that's kind of what we're getting. And so I like to think about it as like, We're drinking what beer used to taste like when cavemen found a bunch of water in a hole and stirred it with a special magic stick and made a beer and they drank it for some reason and it was good and it got them drunk and made them think a little bit less about their awful caveman lives.
0: Um, Before you go into your list, let's just say this for a moment. I'm going to say like, obviously, we love Creature Comfort's Athena, which is not a soured beer, but is a sour tasting beer. It's a kettle acidified beer. Right, but it is not in, in fact like a sour.
1: Yeah. Or a it's s- a Berliner Weisse that's been so yeah. the difference meaning the beer you're about to share has been soured in the fermentation process whereas yeah. Athena the the mash has been acidified. Right. And what that means With is there lactobacillus, there's been lactobacillus, right? lactobacillus yeah. Right, and yeah. So it it eats all the sugar from the mash and then it actually brings the pH down to make it more acidified and then all that bacteria is killed, so it does not continue to acidify the beer after the actual brewing process. What? Well, give me, give me your two, and I'll give you two as well. So I, I went. I had a few to kind of name, and I've kind of been soured out. You know, really? You work at a yeah. I mean, I, I still like a good sour, but after a while, you kind of like kill your taste buds. Like I've I've been to so many bottle tastings where we've sat down and had like twenty crazy sour beers that are super super good. But you just have so many and you're like, yeah, those all kind of taste the same. And you get to a point where you get so bougie, you start talking about, well, this lactobacillus or like, this Bertanomyces tastes different than this Bertanomyces. And I'm like, mm-hmm. who am I anymore? But anyway. Oh, actually, this is actually a really fun corner for one of our listeners, Gabe. And Gabe listens while he uh, he's, a, he's a research assistant at UGA, and he is a great big beer nerd and friend of mine that uh, I hope that I say all these things right for you, Gabe, or that Maybe you learned something. You're not criticizing what I'm saying, Gabe. My my best super fancy um sour beer of this whole thing is called uh it's the Tilken Goose, and Goose is the style. Tilken is the blender. And so it's a it's a Belgian beer. Um Tilken is a blender, meaning that they took they they don't actually brew the beer themselves. And so um there are a bunch of blenders in the world that take lambics, and Lambics are um a, it's a special kind of, of Belgian acidified beer that has been actually wild fermented. And so it's, it's sat in a, uh, a barrel, for instance, and then it's collected yeast and bacteria from the air. And then that's how it ferments the beer itself, rather than introducing yeast into the fermenting tanks. And so they take a, a different ages of lambics, one, two, and three year, or however many years, and they blend those all together until they make a uh, an appealing mess of beer. And then since they're still young lambics, they still have some active yeast cultures in there. So they continue to eat sugar, um, and change the, the profile of the beer later on with all those beers blended in. And so Tilkin Goose, you can find it just about at any, uh, like high profile liquor store or package store here in town. And I'm sure you can find plenty of them in Atlanta, but if you want to impress people, you can go get the Tilkin Goose. It's, um, just a very run of the mill, very good, um, soured beer. Um, the best ever soured beer I've ever had is the Rare Corals by Jester King. Oh Jester my god, King. it's so good! God, it was it's so good! Absolutely incredible beer. It was an ale that was re-fermented. So they made an ale. They probably made something they didn't like, and so they decided to make something else. And they they repitched new yeast, but they instead of the sugar that they pitched was from fruit. So they had cantaloupe, guava, banana, strawberry, toasted coconut, and chamomile, and it was the weirdest, coolest, like most delicious. Sweetest beer, and this came at the end of like a. I had had so many different sours, and I was so bored and so tired of all of them. And then that beer came along, and it was just fantastic. Um, I actually, you know, the way that
0: I've had that is that I have a friend who went to UT and they are in Austin, and he pulled a bottle of that when they made it and saved it for like three years.
1: Oh my gosh, it's so good! It's so it good. was such a good so beer. Good. The very another beer, I'm sorry to to cut you off. Um, no, I know so you're good. about to talk about um, your selection, but. One brewery, one of my favorite breweries and the the beer brewery I've loved the the very most and longest is allagash brewing out of portland um, yeah, so good yeah they're they're out of maine they're out of Portland, Maine, and so I absolutely adore allagash and they make uh this whole line of beers that is wild fermented and they they brew it in a um or they they let it cool down in what's called a cool ship, and so it's a really shallow bath almost where they put all of the liquid across and as it cools down, it's also capturing different yeasts and bacteria in this room. It's like a shed out back, essentially. And they, they will only brew these beers in the colder months in Maine so that, you know, it's it's cooling down faster um, and it's capturing, you know, only select bacteria that can live through that winter season. But they make so many great beers, um, like Pick Your Own, which is a, a blend of, like, blackberries and strawberries and blueberries. And uh, they do uh, all kinds of stuff, though. But, but Allagash's beers, if you can find some in bottles, they're absolutely fantastic.
0: Okay, so I'll give you three, two of which uh-huh. you can get, one of which you can't. So Blue Tarp is a brewery in Atlanta, and I went there two or three years ago when they're first starting out. Like, basically, their tasting room was unfinished. It was just, like, taps on the wall and a big concrete empty room. And I had, uh, they don't even, I don't even think they released it recently, but they have a Berliner Weiss that they did, like, tropical where they used like yeast uh like that was from fruit and I think it was guava and pineapple. But what I liked about it is that a lot of soured beers, especially that like soured, like you were saying, like Berliner Vices are with Lactobacillus. They they are sour tasting, but they're not necessarily sharp. You know what I'm saying? Like they don't they don't really like punch you in the face. And this is the Berliner vice that I've been punched the face been in the face most by. And I think it's called um um funk vice. Um and it's really super funky. Very good. Um, and I I really like rustic beer. I like beer that like farmhouse ales, like beers that uh, taste a little unfinished. I love finished beers and beers that have like really good quality. But I also really like like these little small fly by night operations where every time you go <laughs> in you get a, you get a different thing. I, I think it's fun. And I think like you're saying, soured beers sort of reach back to what beer used to be. And it and I one of the things I love about beer is like it makes me feel this connection to nature and like the beers that have that those qualities kind of really do that for me um the other one i would say and i don't think i've heard it's not as good anymore because this brewery got bought out i think and their qualities kind of go down uh but Asheville's wicked weed they used to have this place called the funcatorium which is just was all these different like naturally brewed ales and fermented and yeasted and uh, there's all sorts of crap but they had this one that was uh, dark angel which was a cherry uh was a, a cherry sour and it had, they had gotten yeast by taking it. And I don't know at what point in the brewing process they did this, but at some point in the brewing process, it sat in a shed in like a cherry orchard. So all of the yeast and all the bacteria in it were like from the actual, like the, from the source or whatever. And then they barrel aged it in bourbon casks and it was so good. So, so good. And the, and the best one I've ever had, and I don't even know what kind of beer it was, but I had a friend when I was in Knoxville uh, who made his own beer and he had made his own mead and my uncle when I was in Knoxville he, he does uh, he's a apiarist he he does uh, bees or whatever he he keeps a beekeeper um, so this guy had gone and basically aged his beer uh, and gotten yeast and all these ingredients from the wildflower and clover fields where the bees were and then had put like honey in it in some part of it so it was like sour but sweet God. It was so good. That sounds it was, really good. Yeah, I don't even know what it was. I think it might have been like a sour meat or something. Um, but it was the it was the best sour alcoholic thing I've ever put in my mouth. And it didn't have a name. <laughs> and it came out of a guy's refrigerator.
1: <laughs> now that we've talked about beer for twenty minutes, we have our our very last segment. Yeah, our very new segment, which we're gonna have to do quickly oh, because
0: ooh, I have to eat ready. and I'm hungry. So to our first our first ever. Segment seven, the Dr. James Bearfield, MD, soon to be, he just got into medical school at Mercer. Congratulations, James. Hey, congratulations. Um, Troll Corner, presented to you by Cheerwine, the wine that gives you diabetes. TM, 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 TM. So first off, what, uh, what poem would you equate to the Tennessee game and why? So let me tell you, let me give you a little backstory for what I'm about to do. So there's been a lot of like sort of social media commotion around the Redcoats this week. And it doesn't really bear getting into it doesn't matter. But there's a lot of like anger and hard feelings going around. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking about getting ready for this was that I always tell these stories about the cool things I've been able to do about Redcoats and, you know, all the cool experiences I've had and how just awesome it is. And it's true. But like ultimately, the biggest contribution to Redcoats or that Redcoats has had to my life is that the people I've known in it, you know, uh, my best friend. My oldest friend uh, was this this guy named Ethan Leslie, who we still play video games basically every day. But Ethan and I met each other in third grade, and we went to school all the way through high school, and then we roomed together, and we are both in Redcoats together. And, you know, I think what's important to me about Redcoats is not, you know, the games I've gone to or the music I've played or the performances I've done, but really just like the people that I've been with. And um, this access, this like sort of Redcoats has always been a place where I've accessed joy where I've had joy for the people I was around and the things that I was doing. And, you know, when I got married, I had 11 groomsmen. And of those 11, 10 or nine of them were coats that were in red coats with me. One of the things that I keep coming back to when kind of thinking through this process, and certainly I am one who's known to get angry, um, is that, you know, I think ultimately we all need to calm down about this team, but also we need to remember why we're here. And I want today to read, this is from Rumi, Rumi is a Sufi spiritualist and ascetic who was also a poet. Um, he was one of Gandhi's big influences, actually, and he he has a very good book called The Book of Love, which is just about like what it's like to fall in love with someone. And this was given me to have, uh This copy is has an annotation on it from one of my very close friends who uh, gave this to me on my wedding day. So this is called The Source of Joy. <laughs> No one knows what makes the soul wake up so happy. Maybe a dawn breeze has blown the veil from the face of God. A thousand new moons appear, roses open laughing. Hearts become perfect rubies like those from Bodishkan. The body turns entirely spirit. Leaves become branches in the wind. Why is it now so easy to surrender even for those who have already surrendered? There's no answer to any of this. No one knows the source of joy. The poet breathes into a reed flute and the tip of every hair makes music. Sham sails down clods of dirts from the roof, and we take jobs as doorkeepers for him. I guess my point is, this isn't really about the game. This is just like, I think it's important for all of us to take a moment and reflect and think about, you know, where our sources of joy are and how unexplainable they are. And this is a silly, stupid thing that we're all doing, and I would include band in that. It is arbitrary and silly. Yeah, it's an important thing to every one of us, and it brings every one of us who's listening to this and everybody out there, it brings everyone joy. and. You know, it's ultimately worth thinking about that the next time you want to get into a fight on Twitter. It's worth thinking (laughs) about, hey, why do I care so much about this thing? Well, ultimately, probably you care so much about it because it makes you happy. And if that's the case, then you've got no business, both from a moral imperative self uh, standpoint or from an ethical level or from just even a self-serving level, you've got no business hating each other. Not because... It's the right thing to do, but because you're messing with the thing that brings you joy when you yell at people. So that's my that's my answer for the poetry.
1: I like it. You ready? In, yeah. The next question from Dr. James Beerfield and his Troll Corner, uh, presented by Cheerwine, the wine that gives you diabetes. T M T M T M. How would you relate the black hole information paradox to Tennessee? Huh, get ready. This is a this is a weird one. This is a stretch. So this is a stretch. Yeah, it really is. I
0: don't know how I'm going to relate this to Tennessee, but I can't infl- I can't explain the black hole information paradox. So that's basically the idea that physical information can get lost in a black hole. Like not like go to a place where we can not find it or whatever, but permanently disappear into the black hole and you know, having many physical states, many physical things in a black hole turn into one physical thing purely, right? Now, the reason this kind of like violates, and I'm going to read part of this from the Wikipedia article because this is a big one even for me. So basically, that in principle, the value of a wave function or of a physical system at one point in time should determine its value at any other time. This has to do with, has a lot to do with general relativity, but also to do with like the conservation of energy and mass, right? Right. You can change things in forms, but not in energy, right? So um basically, the idea is that how can those two things exist together simultaneously? How can how can something be simultaneously in one state, but then change to another? And w- which, you know, it is not fundamentally. And what I would respond to, and I know I just told people not to hate on each other. So let me see if I can do this in a very um, congenial way as possible. I would say that a lot of times, as UGA fans, our heads are like those black holes. We have a physical system go into our brain, say a 26-point win over a conference rival in which we were never really close to losing, and what comes out is a loss where Curvy Smart
1: ain't the right man for this job. So, that's my, that's my relation. Our very last question is, do you think UF and UK are actually good, or was Mississippi State ranked too highly at the start? And I have some, uh, some fun stats for this, actually. Per S P Plus, Mississippi State was ranked right around where they should have been. They came into the year ranked 18th, and their S P Plus ranking preseason was 14th, and following that immediately after their first game, they went all the way up to 6th, where they sat until this past week when they lost to Florida, 6-13, uh, and now they're sitting right around 20. So to give you a kind of a, a look into Florida and uh, Kentucky, Florida and Kentucky, Kentucky, in my opinion, and by the stats opinion, is the best of these three teams. But the thing about each of these three teams is their offensive ranks are significantly lower than their defensive ranks. And so the, all three of these teams have defenses per SP Plus better than our team's uh, defense, actually. They're performing at this point better than our team is performing right this minute. With Mississippi State at 12, Florida's at 13, and Kentucky is at third. So they're the third best defensive team ranked per s Plus, though the differential between their defense and their offense is right around like 50 and 60 ranks. So... All three of these teams are, I think, right where they should be. Uh, I still think Kentucky is the best of the three. I think what we saw um, in these last few games where each of these teams have kind of played each other is just that Kentucky, like I said earlier in this episode, is that they are playing near the top of their potential right now. And Mississippi State played right around 50% of their percentile performance and Florida played, you know, they're played even lower. Um, And so, well, actually, Florida's played, Florida's gotten it together. So they had a few really bad games, and they've actually gotten it together. So, to kind of give you an idea, I mean, they're not as bad as the eye test shows, and you just—that's all you can rely on because we haven't unpacked the stats for you. I know in these episodes because we haven't played these three teams yet, but we will, and so we'll see a little bit more later. But what do you got?
0: Kentucky's good. Kentucky's real that's, good. <laughs> yeah, Florida's still kind of trash. I think. I think their defense is pretty good, but they've also played some trash offenses. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not sure. Nick Fitzgerald is really back to where he was last year, and we beat them thirty to three. So. I don't really think... I'm not that worried about Florida.
1: I'm worried about Kentucky. not worried about Florida. I am worried about Kentucky, like you said. Yeah, Kentucky is is worrisome just because they have stayed right about where they should be defensively all year. They have not had any bobbles. There's nothing to show that, you know, what we're seeing is just a flash in the pan. This really is a team that is playing as the third best defense in the nation. Mm -hmm. And oh man, their second order wins are right at 4.9. They've won five games. They're playing really well. We'll see them in a few weeks. This has been Chapel Bell Curve. You can find us on all the places that you already listen to us, like iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Uh, anywhere you can find our podcast is where you can listen to it. Which is an asinine thing to say. If you come in, if you find me personally and yell at me, I'll email it to you. I'll just tell you what we talked about. I'll repeat the entire podcast right there, and I'll do my voices and Nathan's voices, word for word. Once it's up here, it's not going away. No, I, I mean, I have to listen to this, this thing twice, so you're going to get it all. You can get in touch with us, though, on Facebook or searching Chapel Bell Curve, like I just said. You can email us at chapelbellcurve at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Chapel Bell Curve, Instagram at Chapel Bell Curve. Really, if you just Google Chapel Bell Curve, you will find a way to get in touch with us. And that is how you get on the show by using hashtag AskCBC. And if you don't have a way to actually hashtag hash CBC, you can just send it directly to us or yell at us or a carrier pitch in it or periscope it and try to tag us in it somehow. I don't know how you get us. If you enjoyed today's episode, and I hope you did, uh, but you can leave us a rating and a review that helps us get in front of other people, or you're going to share it with people, or you can retell the entire show to somebody else, just like I did to you.
0: Yeah. But because when the Fahrenheit, uh, Fahrenheit 451 future comes, you're going to need to remember all of this stuff. So you can tell people how awesome we were
1: fair fight 451 wasn't about podcasts or audio but whatever well yeah but i mean people are going to need to repeat this episode just like they repeat leviticus we'll catch you in the classic city next weekend when we take on vanderbilt and before then we'll see you for our preview but until then go dogs go dogs go dogs woof 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 woof
0: Woo! can we
1: get a rick flair woo in here woo! oh hell yeah
0: woo